Well, good morning. If you would, turn your Bibles to the book of Romans. You can turn to the very start. I would encourage you to have your fingers in there. Uh, very start of the book and the very end of the book. Um, I'm going to sort of look at the book of Romans today. I am up here this week because Pastor Daniel's dad, if you haven't already heard, is, uh, has some health complications this week, and Daniel needed to go be with them, um, with his dad and his mom. And uh, it sounds like things are sort of stable, and they're hovering right now. Um, you can be praying for them and for wisdom and, and for his dad's health. Let me pray for us, and we will jump in to God's word. Father, we thank you that you are a God who saves, a God who moves and works on behalf of unworthy people. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, that we might see the gospel, taste of it, and know that it is good, that our hearts might be excited by it, that we would live and look differently because of it. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray all this in his name. Amen. If you would, in the book of Romans, uh, if you would stand with me, we're going to go Romans chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to read uh, chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, and I'll explain why as we get going a little further. Uh, Romans 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now flip over to chapter 16, the end of the book. Chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings have been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. There's an article that was written by Carrie Shane. She's a writer or author for the Huffington Post. Uh, and she writes a story about how someone saved her life. She writes this, How do you thank the stranger who saved your life? Thank you, Andrew. You saved my life. My life. You saved my children from being motherless. I don't know what else to say other than shouting what I now consider our story from the proverbial rooftops. It's completely and utterly obvious that thanking someone for saving one's life is impossible. It's because the magnitude of a thank you can and will never equal the magnitude of having one's life saved. Even trying to write an analogy is a sheer impossibility. Everything comes up short. The closest I can get is the Visa commercial, Priceless. She goes on later on. Since January 25th, 2013, I have been faced with that question, the dilemma really. Other than buying Andrew and his family dinner, how can I thank the man who saved my life? 
my conclusion, there's really just no way. I would suggest this idea is the whole point Paul is making when he wrote the book of Romans. Martin Luther writes of the book of Romans, This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily. As though it were the daily bread of the soul, it is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. In our day and age, we we use a logic system that's based on the Greco-Roman way of structuring or presenting a topic. Uh, This is true for papers that are written or presentations that are given, speeches, even even what we're doing this morning and in our sermons, typically we follow this structure. And the main point of it is talking about what is the main idea you can go to that next slide here. Here's, a, here's sort of a diagram of what it might look like if you're writing a paper or doing a presentation. You would have an introduction that introduces the main idea. And you would have a body that builds on this main idea. Or it has multiple points and they support or encourage or build or prove the main idea. And then you have a conclusion that recaps the main idea, that discusses it and finishes out what was said about it. I would suggest Paul structures his book of Romans and many of his other books in the same way. Go ahead on to that next slide there, Brianna. Thanks. Here's what I would suggest is Paul's outline or structure for the book of Romans. You have the introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Uh, the body, we'll talk more about that. Verse, chapter 1, 16 through chapter 15, verse 13. It's focusing on the gospel, the gospel's presentation, what the gospel is, the gospel's implications, how the gospel affects our thinking, and then the gospel's applications, how the gospel affects our actions. And then he concludes in chapter 15, 14 through the end of the book. And based on this, based on his introduction and conclusion especially, and we're going to look through the body in a bit here, I would suggest Paul has a main point to his book, and here's what it is. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but I'll read it. You can read it too. The gospel that was both promised in the past and has now been presently presented via the Scriptures presents Jesus Christ as the Savior and King of all nations, gives them hope in their salvation, and leads to their obedience of faith with the goal that God might be forever glorified. We're going to look a bit at the start and end of the book, and then we'll go through the book. I would suggest the start and end of the book can be broken down into four main points. The message, the means, the goal, and the end. The book is summarized in those four main points. The message, the means, the goal, and the end. I would suggest the message is the gospel. It's all about Jesus. The means is the presentation of Jesus to the nations via the scriptures. The goal is their obedience of faith. And the end is glory to God forever. Look with me at chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul starts, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. There's there's our message. He's going to give us more about what it is. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. There's the means. 
He gets back to what is this message? Well, verse 3, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. With the goal, what's the goal? To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles with the end for his name's sake, that he be made much of. Go to chapter 16, the end of the book. I'll walk you through the same process. Now to him, verse 25, who is able to establish you according to my gospel. There's the gospel again, the message. And the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's who the gospel is all about. According to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations. There's the means, the presentation of Jesus via the scriptures to the nations. With what goal? Leading to obedience of faith to the end Verse 27, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. I would summarize it this way. A right understanding of the gospel leads to a life lived wholeheartedly for the Savior. A right understanding, if you're thinking correctly about the gospel, it leads to a life that is lived and looks different. Here's a longer quote from Tim Keller, but I I think it summarizes it very well. He says, We never get beyond the gospel and our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. We are not justified by the gospel and then sanctified by obedience, but the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. It is the solution to every problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. It is very common in the church to think as follows. The gospel is for non-Christians. One needs it to be saved, but once saved, you grow through hard work and obedience. But Colossians 1.6 shows that is a mistake. Both confession and hard work that does not arise from and in line with the gospel will not sanctify you. It will strangle you. All our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. And so today, we're going to do a walkthrough of Romans. We're going to go through the book. We're not going to cover every verse or even every chapter, but we're going to go through the book as a whole to try to see this set up by Paul, this argument that he sets up. The gospel leads to life change, leads to believers looking different because of it. Today, we're going to talk about three main points or three main parts of Paul's statement about the gospel. Three truths to understand for the Christian life. It should drastically affect our lives. In fact, Brianna, if you want to go back a slide, it's going to be those three body points. The first one is presentation. Paul presents the gospel. What the gospel is. What God has done. 
Look at chapter 1, verse 18. The first part of the gospel is God is wrathful toward those who reject him. Chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. God is wrathful toward those who reject him. Look at 2, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. And a revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But those who are selfish, ambitious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. God's wrath sits upon those who reject him. The message continues. Not only does God have wrath toward those who rejected him, but all people are in sin and deserving of that wrath. Go to chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is each of us. Our state before God. All have turned aside. There is none righteous. No, not one. God's wrath is upon those who reject him, and each of us has rejected him. We are all in sin. Paul goes on. We are in this bad place, and there is no one that is good enough to meet God's standards. No one who could save him or herself. Go to verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He says, doing all these good things, trying to make yourself more acceptable or pleasing to God, does not yield any results other than the same condemnation. We were already under the same wrath still weighs upon us. But there's hope. 
Paul gives hope. God has made a way for man to have relationship with himself restored. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So as to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in God. What Paul is saying here is that God makes a way. Justification. God makes and declares the sinner who is under his wrath, deserving of his punishment, completely in sin. He makes and changes them and declares them righteous, able to stand in the perfect presence of holy God. How does he do this? Paul explains. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. It's a wrath bearer. It's this picture of you standing out in the rainstorm of God's wrath with the umbrella of Jesus Christ. God's wrath fully deserving to come upon you and him bearing it completely. He gives another picture of propitiation using this term Passover because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. It's the picture of the blood on the doorpost in Exodus the tenth plague has come. The children of Israel are told, put the blood of the doorpost that the angel of death might pass over, not bear God's wrath upon you and your family and the firstborn. This is Christ. It's our Passover lamb. He has been the propitiation, the wrath bearer of God, the wrath that we deserved. Why does God do this? Verse 26 explains, it's for God's character and nature to be upheld. God is a righteous judge. It says that he would be just. The just judge must declare the guilty guilty. There must be a price paid for sin. And so the just judge pours out his price, his wrath. But instead of on us, he pours it out on another. That he might be just and the justifier. The one who is righteous and the one who gives righteousness by killing his own son on our behalf, in our place. Paul goes on presenting the gospel. It's not just enough to understand this and know this, but justification, God making us righteous, must be received by faith. Look at verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or if is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. 
Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. God is the one who justifies, but he calls us by faith to reach out and say, God, I need that. I need a wrath bearer. I I need the propitiation, the blood to cover me, the umbrella in the reign of your wrath, for I am sinful. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Aside from Christ, I need Christ. Faith is the means by which our propitiation is received. And it says the result of this, chapter 5, verse 1, is that relationship with us and God is restored. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. We are made at peace with the warring king, the one whose righteous wrath toward us would be poured out is now at peace with us because another has borne the price for our sin. Then Paul recaps this whole discussion of the gospel in chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. We've been reconciled. The relationship has been restored, brought back. We are now at peace with God. It's that picture, a summary of the gospel there. So so Paul presents the gospel in this first section of the book of Romans. But we're going to move on then to the implications of the gospel. Chapter 6 starts this out. I would suggest it goes from chapter 6, verse 1 to the end of chapter 11. The implications. How the gospel affects our thinking. Who you are because of what God has done in the gospel. He starts, chapter 6, verse 3. We are freed from the power of sin and able to walk in righteousness. We do not have to sin. That's the first implication. Chapter 6, verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's the statement that we make when we 
picture that in baptism. Verse 5, For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Verse 8, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. It says you are free as a believer. You no longer have to sin. The believer cannot say, sin sin made me do this. I, I'm enslaved to sin. It's not true. The believer chooses to sin, which does make it all the worse as we think about that. That every time I sin, it's a willful choice to spit in the face of the one who saved me. The believer, though, is freed from sin. This is the first implication of the gospel. We do not have to sin. We are enabled to walk in righteousness. Second, we are freed from trying to please God via the law because we recognize he's already fulfilled it on our behalf. Go to chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that he might bear, or that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter." He goes on, chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as a, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christ's work in the gospel has dealt with the law. I don't have to live in a way that tries to make God love me, make God please me, make God like me. It's been dealt with. It's been done. It's satisfied. When God looks at me, he sees Jesus, and he says, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. The gospel has drastic implications for why I do what I do. I am free to not have to live to try to please God. I am free to live because God is already pleased with me as he sees Christ. Third, we are enabled to suffer well. 
Because of the gospel, we are enabled to suffer well. Chapter 8, verse 16. This is a longer section. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and have children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. How are we enabled to suffer well? Verse 17 says we're heirs. We have a future hope of the future blessings, the glories that are to be revealed in verse 18. We see in verse 23 our failing bodies, physically and spiritually being restored. We look toward this redemption to come. We're able to suffer well because of a present help that we have. Verse 26 and 27 talk about the Holy Spirit who helps us to pray. As we have these, these feelings and thoughts and desires, and we don't even know how to voice them to God. He says he intercedes on our behalf. He helps us. We have a future hope, a present help. And third, we have a past proof that enables us to suffer well. 
We have the proof that God works for our good. Verse 28 says that God causes all things to work together for good, and he proves it in verse 29 and 30 with him working out the gospel in our lives, calling us before time began, bringing about this process that we would come to him and be saved and know him. We also see his character and his deep love toward us. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? If he would pay the ultimate price, zillions of dollars on your behalf, would he not give you a penny more? The answer is yes. And as we suffer, we need to recognize Paul here recognizes sufferings are a part of the Christian life. He says, who will separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He's understanding these things happen. Sufferings come into the life of a believer. It's easy for us sometimes as sufferings come to say, what have I done wrong? Why is God upset with me? Maybe he's paying me back. If I've displeased him, these are thoughts we would almost never verbalize, but thoughts that go on deep within our hearts. And yet Paul says, no, these are to be expected, and their goal of them is to turn us to the Savior, to the King, to the one who died on our behalf. They bring us back to the gospel. We embrace these sufferings, for they point us back to him. The last implication, we are unable to praise and worship God. Paul closes this section in chapter 11, verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And then he launches into this doxology. Paul cannot help but praise, but worship God, but speak out about what God has done. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who came to his counsel, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The implication of the gospel is that it should move us to praise. That's why our worship songs that we sing are gospel-saturated. That's why Mike chooses these songs that our hearts would burn within us as we hear the truth of the gospel, what God has done, that it would move us to worship Paul continues in his logical progression. It's not enough just to know the gospel and to understand its implications. The gospel ultimately calls for application. That's the third point. The applications of the gospel. How the gospel affects our actions. How you should live because of what God has done for you and who you are in Christ. And we'll quickly go through some of these. We're to use our body and mind for the glory of God. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
We're to use our spiritual gifts that God has given us to serve his church. Chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the portion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You've been given a gift. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit lives within you, and you are gifted to be a gift to the church. Paul says that is the application of the gospel. Be a gift to the church. Third, respect and obey government authorities. Chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed receive condemnation upon themselves. Fourth, love those around you. Chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment that is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Fifth, battle with your fleshly lusts and desires. The end of chapter 13 has this great statement. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. We battle for holiness because of the gospel and what God has done and who we are in Christ. And last, we care for those who are weaker in the faith. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith. But do not do so for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. The gospel has a deep and profound, or at least is to have a deep and profound effect on our lives. When we've tasted of the gospel, we should have the logical results, the end results of obedience, of faith, that Paul introduces and concludes his letter with. A few questions of application for you. First, does the gospel amaze you? Are you blown away by the gospel and what God has done for you, or are you sort of bored with it? Is it just something that you feel like, yeah, you know the drill. I got it down. I'll share with my unsaved friend if they ever ask. Or is it something that amazes you and is part of your life on a daily basis? Or is it just this thing out there that you've done or you know? If it doesn't, ask the Lord to quicken your heart, to give you an understanding of his amazing grace, a delight in the gospel, what God has done for you. Spend time. Read the book of Romans. We've just gone through this together a bit here. Read through this. Let the gospel saturate deeply in your mind. Sing songs of praise that will remind you of its truths. Listen to these lyrics. This is And Can It Be. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? I, I gain a benefit, an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me? Who caused his pain for me? Who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Sing songs that move your heart. 
warm your heart to the gospel. Second, are you applying the gospel into your daily life? Are you battling with sin knowing Christ has freed you from it? Are you seeking to love others better because the great love that God has shown you? Are you an ever more humble person recognizing your own desperate state before God and his great kindness toward you while you were yet a sinner? Ask the Lord to reveal areas he would have you grow in, ways he would have you reflect his gospel, live in his likeness. Ask the Lord to fuel a life lived by him, expanding your understanding of the gospel daily. Carrie Shane's life was forever changed. Her life was forever impacted by her rescuer that day. She will forever be in his debt, understanding there is absolutely no way to ever repay it, and yet longing to do so. How much more so should those whose soul has been saved from the internal damnation of hell praise our God, desire to live for him, that we would understand the gospel and look differently because of it? Here's how Paul puts it. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he did die for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Let's pray. Father, you are an awesome God. We could never plumb the depths of understanding of your great love and kindness and grace toward us in the gospel. We've briefly looked at one small book of your word that demonstrates this truth, and Lord, we are amazed. Let our hearts burn. Let us have hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone, hearts that are warmed by these truths, that live in light of these truths, that we would live out the gospel, love the gospel, be amazed by the gospel, that it would, it would delight us and motivate us and encourage us that, Lord, you would be glorified. That is the end result that Paul talks about here, that you would be made much of. And so, Lord, we desire that you be made much of as we see the gospel more clearly and live it out in our lives. We thank you for Jesus, the, the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, the Savior and the King, and we pray all this in his name.